Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the first epistle of the Apostle Peter, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call upon the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, 
love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the 29th chapter of the book of Jeremiah, there is a passage there that is actually a letter. The judgment of God is falling upon the people of God. The prophets have, for centuries, been sent by God to the people who are rebelling against him in idolatry and in moral failure, and the threatenings that God has made are now coming to pass. Jeremiah has been told, don't even pray for this people because they've They've crossed the line of no return. My judgment is going to fall. And uh, the beginning of that was that pagan people, those who uh, worshipped idols and had nothing to do with God's people, uh, had already begun their invasions and was beginning to carry people away captive to uh, Babylon where people would live as captives in a foreign land. And the letter that... Jeremiah writes is specifically to the exiles, or as they would come to be called, the diaspora, or if you put it in English, the dispersion. Um, You had people who were covenantally part of God's uh, covenant, but now they were outside of the promised land, they've been taken away from the temple, they were not where they want to be by any stretch of the imagination. Was there any hope them in God. Well, this Holy Spirit-inspired letter said to them, yes, there is a hope and a future for you. The letter begins like this. It's much longer, but the first taste of it is, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will have peace. As I said, the letter is much longer, but the general uh, teaching that God is giving through his prophet is, even though you are not where you would like to be, uh, there is a hope, there is peace for you, and it is God's will for you to live in this awkward situation now. God has acted, he has caused you to be a dispersion, he has caused you to be scattered throughout the world, but God has not forgotten you. It is God's will that things are as they are now, and the community that you have been made to live in 
by the hand of God, by providence, you are to seek the good of that community, you are to pray for that community, you are to dwell there as a citizen of that community, Uh, you are not to despise where you're at, you are to uh, act like this is where I'm supposed to live, because you are. Uh, You live there as strangers, you are carried away as diaspora, you will never really be of the city or town you're in, but to the degree that you can pray for its peace, to the degree that you can seek its good, do that, and you are to put down roots. You will feel rootless. You, you, you are placed in a situation where it, it feels like you don't belong, and in a real sense you don't, but still put down roots, find uh, husbands for your daughters, find wives for your sons, uh, build families, build the community. It's not exactly what it should be, but put down roots, live like you're intending to do something significant, uh, but also realize that there's something better awaiting. The letter goes on to say in verse 10 through 11, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So there's something better coming. You're not having your best life now, and everybody recognizes that. But because God is the God of hope, As you live in diaspora, as you live scattered through the nations, uh, realize that the future is what you're looking towards. God has made a promise to his people, much better things are going to come. The promised land will be God's people's, but you live where you're at now, putting down roots with a mind towards that future. Live in hope towards that future, but live now, live in the community you're in, put down your roots, build things that are significant, but live in hope. And don't listen to the prophets who tell you any different. The letter is long, but a lot of it is directed at false prophets who are saying to the diaspora, you are the people of God and you deserve better than what you're getting now. And God is going to bring you back really quickly. He's not going to leave you as a diaspora. God is going to bring you back to the promised land next year, maybe the year after. Uh, This is very brief. Don't put down roots because you don't belong here. Uh, Diaspora is bad. God is going to deliver you. And God's spirit through the prophet says, these people are lying to you. It is God's will that you live in diaspora now. It's not comfortable. It's not the way things will be. But it is what God wills for you right now. And God has a purpose for you right now. He wants you to live in a certain way right now. But understand, the best is yet to come. The hand of God will provide the best later, 70 years later. Live with an eye towards the future, 
put down your roots, build significant things, pray for your community, and live with an eye for what God will do in the future. Whenever this letter is preached, those things are uh, generally directed by the preacher to the congregation as this is where you're at. You are like the exiles, and this is kind of what God wants from you. He has placed you in a situation that is awkward. You are scattered among the unbelieving world in small communities called churches. You're not in the perfection that will be. And it's God's will for you to be in this condition. Uh, Put down roots and live like you're building significant things, build families. God wills for you to be productive and to live in that estate. But you will always be aliens and strangers, and the future is where you should look to. You should look to what God is going to do in the future. God is going to bring the day of judgment. Christ will reign. The entire world and all the universe will be visibly his kingdom. You should live with an idea that you live towards the hope of what God is going to do in the future. In these more recent days... There has been a pushback against that message. You have had theologians, especially on the reform side, say, you're not an exile in Babylon. Uh, Jeremiah was writing to specific people in a specific situation, and that verse about God knowing his plans for you, a plan to build you up and not tear you down, Uh, That doesn't really have anything to do with you. Uh, I know everybody loves it, and that's why the passage gets preached. It's a famous passage. But you're not in exile in Babylon. Don't apply this to New Testament people. These are also the same people who say, you're not David. So when you read about David and Goliath, you shouldn't picture yourself as fighting Goliath because uh, David is a type and shadow of Christ and Goliath is a type and shadow of the prince of the power of the air the story has nothing to do with you Uh, God won't call you to slay giants don't put yourself there is that true does this passage I'm talking about right now have nothing to do with us Uh, will God never call us to slay giants Will he never ask us to stand in the gap for God's people? Uh, All of those things have nothing to do with us. We're in 1 Peter. And uh, the chapter begins, as most books do, with some introductions and some definitions. Peter introduces himself briefly. He says, he is Peter. And generally, we would know who he is. He's one of the apostles. And specifically, he emphasizes Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter could tell us uh, lots of things about himself, but the really only important thing for him to tell us is he is not just writing us a letter. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. As citizens of the first century, we know what an apostle is, Caesar has sent them out throughout the world. We know what they are. They are messengers of the Most High Ruler bearing his message to us. Peter wants us to know that's who he is. This is a letter effectively 
from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It was written by Peter, but he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is a letter from our Lord Christ to you. And then he moves on to define who we are, the people who are receiving the letter. He says we are pilgrims. Now, we're pilgrims in very specific places. We live in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All of those places basically fit in modern-day Turkey now. But we are pilgrims in those places. We are not inhabitants who are going to stay there. And in fact, we are a specific kind of pilgrim to the pilgrims of the dispersion. Anyone want to guess what the Greek word under that is? It's diaspora. It is the word that Bible readers for centuries have been reading when they read the Old Testament in Greek, talking about who the exiles are. It's the people that Jeremiah wrote the letter to. You have been scattered through the world. You're not in the situation you would like to be in. But God has willed you to be where you're at, treat your community like your own, pray for it, seek its good, live as a member of the community, know that you will never fit in there, and in fact, look to the future and realize God is going to do something. He is going to bring you to the promised land where you're not now, and you should live with an eye towards the future You should be heavenly-minded so that you can be earthly good, but live in the now and the not yet, because you are strangers and pilgrims in a pagan world, but you're the diaspora, and God knows his mind towards you to give you hope in the future. In one word, the Apostle Peter applies Jeremiah's letter to us. We are exactly like them. We are living in a pagan world. We're living in Bithynia. We're living in Galatia. These are pagan nations with pagan peoples, and they are our neighbors. We are not living in the glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ as we would like to live in it, and we feel very awkward. We are outnumbered. We are the kind of people who stick out because we belong to the Most High God, If we are faithful to God, we will stick out even more. We will never quite be at home where we're at, but God calls us to serve him where we're at, to put down roots, to build families and homes, to treat the community like our own, but to live with an eye towards what God is going to do in the future, the coming kingdom of God. You don't quite belong. There will be a day where the kingdom you live in will be outwardly, completely, obviously the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Uh, You live in Babylon now, though. You live surrounded by paganism and the world. Live like people who don't quite belong here. Now, what is it that makes you like them? Well, here we have a bit of a paradox. Those who were carried off to Babylon were carried off because of their sinfulness. They were carried off in the wrath of God. 
But Peter defines why we are the diaspora in much more positive terms. Who are we that we should live as strangers and aliens in the world? Well, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That election has to do with our being sanctified of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's take the implications of that one by one. You don't belong, you don't fit in, says Peter, specifically because you belong to Jesus Christ. If you would have peace with God, if you would be what your creator wants you to be, you will have to deal with the fact that that makes you a stranger and an alien. But you have been chosen to be in Jesus Christ. Peter says you were elected. God chose you before the foundation of the world to be what you are. He chose you to be, quote, sanctified by the Spirit. This has been one of the major themes I've been preaching on for the last couple weeks. I have emphasized sanctification as being set apart to holy service. I have defined it as different from justification and um, being made alive again. And I have focused on it mostly on the far side of being converted. When God converts you, he brings you from death to life. After that happens, the sanctification process continues and you grow in your holiness. But I don't want you to understand by that teaching that sanctification of the Spirit only starts after you've been brought to life. How is it that you were brought to life? Well, you were brought to life by the death and resurrection of Christ. You were brought to life by the Holy Spirit applying that to you. But how did it happen practically and chronologically? Did you simply one day realize Jesus Christ died for me? I will live for him. What Was it an amazing flash of transformation that happened with no antecedent to it? Nothing happened before this. Just one day you're walking down the street and suddenly you belong to Christ and God didn't use anything to have that happen. It's just literally a miracle. You never had a religious thought in your head, and then suddenly, zap, you are a believer. Is that, that how it works? No, God uses means. And God's Holy Spirit is active in the world. God, I don't know your, spirit, your stories, but I'm sure if you look back before God converted you, you will see the hand of God wooing you and bringing you to that spot. He was using godly people. He was using godly influences. He was even using um, what looked like at the time happenstance and circumstance. But everything was working to draw you to that place where God would bring to bear on you the power of the Spirit the, the power of the gospel, you were brought to that place and that time by the hand of God so that you would be converted then and there. 
Well, what is sanctification? Sanctification is a process whereby God sets us apart for holy service. This starts before we're converted. God begins to work in the life of an individual. God begins to draw them to move their life. He is being gracious to them. Uh, You realize without thinking about God involved in the world, right? Uh, You would have to believe that the fact that you are a Christian, a saved person, was a total random event. You could have been hit by a bus a week before God converted you. It's just random and happenstance that you live to that point, right? Not according to the word. According to the word, all things fall out according to God's will. You lived to the moment that God brought you to salvation because God gave you your next heartbeat. Because God in his sovereignty did not let you be hit by a bus. God watches over you from before you're created. God has a plan and a purpose for you. He draws you to himself to the point where that happens. He sanctifies you by the Spirit. And when he sanctifies you, he sprinkles you with the blood of Jesus at a particular time. The blood of Christ is applied to you. You are brought to life and you are brought into a life of obedience. And in a brief little sentence, the apostle sums up that entire process. This is who you are. You were chosen by God before the foundation of the world in, quote, his foreknowledge. Now, if you are an Arminian, you immediately jump on that word and chew on it like a rabid dog. It is, it is the word in this passage that you love. Because you say, well, yeah, God chose me from before the foundation of the world, but it's because God foreknew I would choose him. So in his foreknowledge, God, depended upon what I was going to do, uh, chose me. There are a couple problems with that. The first one is, it makes God dependent on time and chance. I was reading an Arminian writer about a month ago, and generally I like his writings, but it hit me like a ton of bricks as he was describing God. He was literally describing God as not really knowing what was happening. God would have to see what would take place, and it would take place in time which God was living through, just like us. And I realized that doesn't sound very godly. God is not subject to chance. God is not subject to time. But the bigger problem, and this is a textual one and not a philosophical one, the word foreknowledge here, to know, is used in Scripture not for the kind of knowledge that you would get from reading a book. There is a word for that, the Greek word for that is udia. If you have udia, you know something here, but it's not something that you practically know. It's just something that you kind of have a knowledge of. The word here is nosko, and it's the word that is used in Genesis where Adam 
knew his wife and she bore him a son. Did Adam udia Eve? Did he look at Eve and go, I know what her favorite color is and I know that she enjoys a sunset and uh, you know she's got this cute little accent? Or was Adam knowing her in a very more intimate kind of way? Udea doesn't lead to children, but Nosco does. And that's the word that's being used here. It's a word of intimacy. It's a word of experience. It's a word that says God knew us, really knew us, not just here, but had an emotional, if I can use that term, attachment to us, had a relationship with us before ever we were created. In the plan and purpose of God, God had already incorporated us into what he's doing, and we are chosen according to what God intimately was doing with creation. And so this is, this is a wonderful definition of what it means to be in Christ. You are chosen by God because God has had a relationship with you from before you ever were, before the world ever was, he was going to draw you by the Spirit to the place he would sprinkle the blood of Jesus on you, and you have been designed for obedience to him. This is remarkable good news, but it means that you can't be comfortable in the world as it is. When you get up in the morning and you have this feeling that I just don't quite belong here, you're correct. You are the diaspora. This is not your home. It is God's will that you live in exile now. It is God's will that you do great things. Throughout the Christian world at the moment, there is a a lot of debate about what does it mean to live in the world as Christians. The 20th century evangelical understanding of that was basically uh, you were Christian when you were in church and you were Christian at your prayers, but it was a really good thing that we live in a society that is, quote, multicultural, and we would lay aside all of our Christianity when we walked out the door. We would go live in a non-Christian world, and we wouldn't live there as Christians we would live there really happy that everybody could believe and do what they wanted, and Christianity was just for your private inner life. And it's becoming very clear that's not the way Christianity is designed to be worked. A Christian is a Christian 24 hours of the day. He is a Christian in every environment. Uh, if he is a Christian politician, he is under the king of kings before he is under the Constitution. If he is a Christian police officer, he serves the Lord of hosts before he serves the state. But it's very uncomfortable to try to figure out how that works out. Do you attempt to overtly make the state Christian? Do you attempt to build countercultural communities inside of the state? Um, the Christian world is kind of feeling its way around that. And that's what you would expect if you were effectively resident aliens. If you were living diaspora and God said, now I want you to live in this society like people who belong to the city. 
I want you to pray for it. I want you to work for the city. I want you to try to build it up. I want you to build up your families in the city, uh, but realize you will always be foreigners here. That is an awkward place to be. And that is exactly where God wants us to be at the moment. Pray for the city. Live like this is your home, even when it's not. Live for the future, though you live today. Look forward to that much greater gathering into the promised land than the Jews of Jeremiah's time ever had hoped for, the coming of Jesus Christ to make the world overtly his. Um, Live in the now and the not yet. But this world is not your home. You are just a passing through. Your treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And realize that if it feels very awkward, there's nothing really for you to do about that. If you feel like you don't belong here, if you feel out of step, if you feel awkward, congratulations. It is the testimony of the Spirit you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God that he has sanctified you by his spirit and made you something different than the city you dwell in. He has brought you to life by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. He has given you to be obedient to him. Congratulations. The testimony that you're the real deal is right before you if you feel like you're a square in a round hole. It's one of the testimonies. God's people simply don't fit in. But they certainly have reasons to be joyful and thankful. As we ended 1 Thessalonians last Lord's Day, we heard the Apostle tell us to, quote, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Peter goes from saying, you're resident aliens, to beginning to show us why, even in our awkward estate, we have amazing reasons to be thankful and joyful. He begins with the statement, Blessed be our God and Father. That is a joyful expression of praise. If, if living in the world is painful and difficult, there is something far, far better than that that balances it out, And that is our relationship with our God and Father. This is the nature of that relationship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Why should you be thankful? Why should you be grateful? Well, the first thing is you've been reborn. We Protestant Christians adore the concept of being born again. But it's surprising how few times it's actually mentioned in scripture there are all kinds of pictures of what it means to be brought from death to life and being born again is just one of them but uh, in the gospel of John in chapter 3 of course you have the reference to being born again and it will be throughout 
First Peter. Peter adores that imagery of what it means to be brought to life. You have been reborn. You are alive, and you are alive to, quote, a living hope. And Peter will define that living hope under three different uh, words. He will call it an inheritance, he will call it a salvation, and he will call it a revelation. And all three of these things are the same thing. You have been brought to life, you are in the family of God, and as anyone who is a son in a family, having been born, you can look forward to something to come in the future. And that something is, quote, your inheritance. (laughs) It would be a lie to say that most people don't give any thought to what they will inherit. You would like to think that uh, children don't think about that, that uh, they honor their parents, they don't care what they're going to receive upon their death, but to be honest, all human beings really do tend to think about that, and as a pastor, I have watched whole families disintegrate over the issue of an inheritance, who gets what, everybody gets really mad at each other, they end up fighting at the estate, it's nasty. Uh, Human inheritance can actually be a very ugly thing. But you have been born into a family, if you belong to Christ, where you have an inheritance coming, but the inheritance is, quote, incorruptible, it is undefiled, and it does not fade away. Everything in this world is not those things. Everything you can lay your hand upon, anything you can lay your sight upon, uh, it is not incorruptible. It is passing away at this very moment. Every treasure you treasure, everything that is meaningful to you, uh, it's rotting in whatever ways things rot. Your books are turning to dust. Your art pieces are fading away. Your houses are undergoing decay. Uh, There's nothing tangible in this world that isn't this very moment going from most complex to least complex, minute by minute. It's in this world, and this world is under the curse of God, and it's the place of sin, so everything that you possess is built into the world system to some degree. There is nothing in this world that is not undefiled, and everything will fade away. So Anything you're looking for materialistically, realize the clock is ticking. It it won't last. But Peter says you have been born again into a hope of an inheritance that is undefiled, that is not going to perish, that isn't going to fade away, but it is reserved in heaven for you. That brings us to the next description of our living hope, which is salvation. Salvation is where you are surrounded by the enemy and bullets are flying and it looks like you are doomed and then you hear the sound of the cavalry and they pull you out of a deadly situation. They save you. Or maybe it's the fireman who is coming into the burning building and flames are leaping all around you and they will destroy you but the fireman pulls you out. 
Peter says you have an inheritance coming, and it's going to be like a salvation. You know how everything in the world is falling apart. You know how everything is corrupted. You know how everything is fading away. Well, Peter points to you and says, that's happening to you too. You are corrupted. Sin is deep inside of you. You are fading away. Any of y'all getting younger day by day? Uh, Anybody here wake up and you have a new pain? Peter points to us and he says, this living hope applies to you. God is going to save you out of this sinful and dying world. And that salvation is going to take place at a very specific moment. It's going to take place at, quote, the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is nothing in these first verses of Peter's letter that teach us to look primarily at the here and now at all. Now, our Lord has a place for that. If you go to the Sermon on the Mount, Christ will tell you, don't worry about tomorrow. Uh, Tomorrow will take care of itself. Uh, Each day has its own problems. But that does not negate what he is telling us here through his apostle, where we are to look forward to what is to come. Our entire life should be geared towards the, the glory, the wonder of Christ's second coming, and we should live in that hope. That's our home. That's our kingdom. We belong to a coming age. We don't belong to this age. And we will receive our living hope when Jesus Christ is seen. We uh, prayed to God this morning that, uh, among other things, that we would uh, keep the law that says we will not make any graven images. We will not make any image of the divine. Lord, help us keep this law. There is a huge swath of humanity inside the Christian church that is angry at God because we don't have any images of God. All you have to do is go to a Jesus junk store, otherwise known as a Christian bookstore. Uh, The first thing you will see as you walk in the door is velvet Elvis Jesuses and candles with, quote, Jesus' image on it. And you might even see statues of, quote, Jesus. There's not a one of them that is an image of Christ. Because God himself gave us no image of Jesus. Our Lord walked on earth for 33 years. No portrait of him was ever painted. No statue of him was ever made. There is some written description of what he looked like, but what the early church said he looked like has nothing to do with what you will see in those Jesus junk stores. According to the early church, our Lord was fairly nondescript and even a little hunched over and had a hunchback. I don't know if he did or not, but that's what they tell me he did, people who lived there. Um, we don't depict him that way at all, but we don't have the ability to p- depict him at all. 
There is no way to make a picture of Jesus because nobody knows what he looked like. But we want to do it. We are, we, there's something deep in our heart where we want to make an image of our divine Savior. It drives us. And we get mad at people who tell us you shouldn't do that. I mean, we get mad at them. Why would we get mad at them? Well, it's because there is a passion to make this image. There is something in the human psyche that wants to see the face of God. And if we can't see him, we're going to invent him. We're going to make a picture that will show us the Jesus that we want to see. But the problem with that is that's idolatry, and that's what we prayed to God that we wouldn't do. We prayed that we wouldn't make a graven image. Um, In the future, in the day of the Lord, Christ will, quote, be revealed. There is a moment where we will actually see our Lord, and we will see him for who he is. We will see him without anything separating us from him. No, no sinful estate, no lack of knowledge, no, no cursed nature. We will actually have Jesus Christ revealed and we will see him with our eyes. And in scripture, this seeing of God is one of the great gifts of that moment. Listen to what the Apostle John says about what's going to happen. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Sound familiar? Sound like what Peter was talking about? Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. So the Apostle John talks about the day when Christ is revealed, and we actually see him, and we will become without sin, we will become without death, we will become without temptation, because we've seen him. That ever happened to you looking at one of those velvet Jesus kind of things? You walk into a Catholic church and you see a statue of Jesus and suddenly you're like God because you've seen him? It happened. Because that's not Jesus. That's not God. One of the great promises you have is you have a living hope. You are going to see Christ and seeing him is going to be transformative. The longing of your heart to see God will be fulfilled. And everything of sin and death and destruction will be taken away. And Peter here in our chapter even highlights that. He says, you love Christ even though you haven't seen him. Peter emphasizes that. You have never seen Christ, but you're going to see him. There is going to be a revelation of Jesus Christ. It is part of your living hope. And when that happens... Everything God has ever promised you is going to be given to you. Live in light of this incredible hope. In seminary, I can't count the number of professors who told me 
The problem with the church of Jesus Christ is it is too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. The problem with Christians is they are too caught up in spiritual doctrines and thoughts on God and on the promises of God in the coming age. We need to make Christians more rooted in the here and now to get them useful. You agree with that? You think that's the truth? I don't think it's the truth. 33 years of ministry have shown me a church that is way too earthly minded to be heavenly good. They look at what they have in this world, they look at the possessions they hold, they look at the details of this world, and they are caught up in the here and now, and being caught up in the here and now, they can be no heavenly good. What they need to do is they need to look to Christ and glory in his promises. They need to rejoice at the living hope promised them. They need to live now in the awkwardness of the fact that their kingdom is then. That's actually when they can be made earthly good. People who are caught up in the here and now are like Christ's parable about the seed that gets cast into that soil where all the other plants grow up and choke it out. Christ defines that as the cares, the troubles, and even the joys of this world. They choke out the seed of the gospel and make it unfruitful. Christians who will be useful in this world must be heavenly minded. And Peter is calling us to that. And he is calling us to that against a backdrop of a world that is very painful indeed. The Thessalonians were facing severe persecution, and I tried to emphasize that. If I had gone into 2 Thessalonians, we would have seen it get worse. The Christians that Peter is writing to have the same thing happening to them. They belong to Christ, and Christ has said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, And that very spirit of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself is something the world reacts to like vampires to garlic. They hate it. They hate love. They desire to crush real love. Anywhere the gospel goes, the world responds to hate it and crush it. And these Christians are no exception. They are facing difficult times. Most likely, what Peter is writing about is persecution like the Thessalonians are having. But Peter writes in a bit more broad way, having talked about the fact that we have this living hope, and it comes from the fact Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, and we are kept in it by faith. Look at the passage. The passage says... Why can you hold on to this living hope and know it's your own and hold on to it all the way through life? What what gives you the hope of this? Well, it's your faith. Well, Peter jumps off the phrase faith and he writes this. In this you greatly rejoice. Talking about your living hope. Though now for a little while, if need be, You have been grieved by various trials. So Peter is showing us the world is painful and and hurts. 
You've been grieved by various trials. The reason for that is that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Puritans had a sin they often preached against, and you don't hear it preached against today much, but the problem is as big now as it used to be. It was the sin of presumption. The Puritans said there were many people who occupied pews in churches who presumed they had been born again, that God had given them faith that they were Christians, but it was mere presumption. They thought it was true, but it wasn't really true. Peter says, God has given you faith. Faith is keeping you in his promises. But how will you really know that you have faith? How will you know you're not sinning the sin of presumption? You just think you're a Christian, but you're not. Well, Peter says there's an answer to that. Let's see what happens to your faith when things go south. Let's see what happens to your faith when the world hates you. Let's see what happens to your faith when you suffer problems you don't know how to get out of. Let's see what happens to your faith when that loved one dies. Let's see what happens to your faith when that medical condition that won't go away gets worse. Is it still there? Or is it not? Peter takes us to the firing kill where gold is placed. Gold is put into fire to melt it, to refine it, to show that it's truly gold. Peter says God is doing that with your faith. Now, God doesn't need to see if you have faith or not. God totally knows. The testing of your faith is not for him, it's for you. Do I really belong to the Lord? Do I really love him, as Peter said, I do? Do I long for him? It's easy to do when life is good. It is easy to do when you're not wrestling with despair. Do you do it when you are Peter uses the language of absolute necessity. You rejoice in your living hope. You have been made elect by God. You have a hope coming, but is it really true? Let's put you in the fire and find out. So far from being the God who delivers you from all your troubles, Peter describes God as using your troubles to test your faith. It is a grace of God that he does so. We find out at that moment, are we the real deal? And Peter says we will be. He says that your faith will result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ comes. It will be shown to be a treasure. And who is getting the praise and the glory and the honor for that treasure? Well, it's actually Jesus Christ. Your faith is a gift from God. Your faith protects you in your relationship with God. According to Ephesians chapter 2, God gave you the faith. 
And here, at the revelation of Christ, when our living hope is given to us, there will be praise and honor and glory for what God has done. He has created our faith. He has given us this treasure. The fire of difficulty has demonstrated it to be what it is. Speaking of Ephesians 2, there is an interesting passage in Ephesians. Uh, It's in the middle of chapter 2. It's verse 5 through 7. I used to read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and believe that this section was about a future hope. But it's not, actually. It's about what's happening right now. We read, Even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the age to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, The future ages is future, but the sitting at his table is right now. He has lifted us up, we are sitting at his table, and we're told that God has seated us at his table because he wants to show us off. He wants to show the entirety of creation, which is probably much, much broader than we ever experience. He wants to show creation his grace and his mercy and his love, and so he points to us and he says, look what I have done with these people. Here in 1 Peter, we are told the fire of persecution, the fire of suffering, the fire of problems, the fire of heartache, it will not destroy the faith that God has created if it's real. That will last, that will be purified, and it will be shown to be the treasure God has made, and he will be praised, he will be glorified for what he has done in us by giving us faith. This living hope, which our troubles and difficulties show we belong to, far, far outweighs being a stranger and an alien in this world.